Thank you, Mark. I would invite you to take out a Bible, whether you're here in the church sanctuary or if you're watching online, and turn to the Psalms. This morning we're going to be looking at a part of Psalm 89, verses 1 through 18 is what I'll read, but I chose this psalm specifically because of what verse 14 says, because we're going to be looking at the topics of righteousness and justice this morning. And uh, verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. But as we read through these 18 verses, I want to ask you to just follow along and, and look for those words that strike you about how wonderful and how awesome our God is, because there's quite a picture that we're given of who God is in the words of this psalm. And it begins with the psalmist saying, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said... I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround Him. Who is like You, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and Your faithfulness surrounds You. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, You still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With Your strong arm, You scattered Your enemies. The heavens are Yours, and Yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness. For you are their glory and their strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, the shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Father, this is just a small bit of what you teach us in your word, in the words of this psalm. We ask, Lord, that our hearts will be open to receive what you want to teach us and tell us today as we we think about your awesomeness, your greatness, and especially when it comes to your righteousness and justice. So we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit, we will praise you as we grow in our faith and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, just before I start, I'll just tell you, I, uh, I have a little grandson who shared his cold with me a couple weeks ago, and so I'm getting over that, but I may have to blow my nose or cough, and if I forget to say excuse me then, well, I do mean it, but... Hopefully my voice will get us through just fine. I've got my lozenge and I've got my water, so it should be all right. And God is with us to bless us. And this morning I want to continue my reflections with you about the inherent holiness of all of God's redeemed and saved people. If you think back to 
messages I brought in other months last year when I was here. I've been talking about holiness and principles of holiness. And, well, righteousness and justice fall into that category. They are principles of our holiness. So we're moving on to talk about those things today. And, and God challenges all of followers of Jesus Christ. He said, God said, be holy because I am holy. And this challenge, as I've told you before, is, is a word from God charging us to live into something that we have already got as Christians. Being holy. And we have been made so through sharing in Jesus Christ perfect holiness that is given to us as a benefit of salvation. A benefit of given to all who believe in him. Now, of course, we do understand that we are what we could call a work in progress. And our holiness will not be perfect until Jesus comes again. But with the help and the guidance and the blessings of the Holy Spirit, we can certainly work at becoming better reflections of Jesus' holiness. And as we'll explore a bit today, that also means reflecting another characteristic of Jesus' That's also given freely to his people. Righteousness. Out of which, as Isaiah 117 puts it, we are challenged to learn to do right and seek justice. But to do that well, we need to understand the source of true righteousness and justice. Now, as I've been thinking about that over the past several weeks in preparation for getting this sermon written and delivered to people, I, I think, you know, being holy is quite unimaginable. But now layer righteousness and justice right along with it. Holy and righteous and just. You know, to us, being holy is, well, it's unimaginable because holiness means being perfect in every way. And we know that only God is that. And then righteousness and justice, well, being rooted in perfect holiness means that they are about always, always knowing and doing what is right and good. To be such a person is truly, it's mind-blowing. But in being saved by grace and motivated by God's love, His people in faith and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can certainly exemplify His holiness and righteousness and justice as we strive to follow Jesus on the way he calls us to live. Now, as we begin to explore this amazing truth, I want to ask you to think first about building construction. Back in what my grandkids think of as the olden days, I was a construction worker. So I know a little bit about building structures like houses and barns and factories and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure most of you do too. Um, some of you have worked or are working in various building trades, and, and some have hands-on experience perhaps in building your own house or other structures like barns or whatever. So, so we know that any permanent structure must have a solid, firm base, an immovable one, a secure one in order to prevent movement and shifting and cracking and perhaps even the collapse of a structure. And knowing that is helpful for visualizing the awesome picture that Psalm 89 verse 14 provides about God. A picture of God reigning over his kingdom while sitting on a throne. Picture it in your mind. A throne that has 
righteousness and justice as its foundation. Therefore, indicating to us that God's kingdom is established on a base of perfect righteousness and perfect justice. And since those words righteousness and justice are kind of legal terms, that also tells us that God's kingdom stands on and functions in concert with a perfect law. Now let's visualize something else. Let's visualize a courtroom. What takes place in courtrooms. Uh, we see them in movies, we see them in TV shows, and perhaps we've even had opportunity to be in them ourselves. And courtrooms, we know, have a large raised desk called the judge's bench that is prominent at the front of the room. That bench represents the power and the authority of what we call law. And law governs the ways a society functions. From his or her seat on the bench, the judge presiding over a case listens to all the evidence and makes rulings that are in tune with determinations of what society has codified as law in things we call our justice system. (coughs) A system which itself is governed by what a society has determined to be what we call them constitutional rights and freedoms. And they're not the same in every country. In our civil, moral, ethical society, we hope that our system stands on a foundation that mirrors God's throne, an immovable, solid foundation that consists of righteousness from which justice always flows fairly and equitably. In an ideal world, it would. But we, unfortunately, are far from being in such a world So our justice system is actually a kind of formal legal system where justice in many ways and times is often kind of conditional. It's not always grounded in what we would consider to be righteousness. Although judges and law professors and lawyers will argue that it is always well-intentioned. And in our society, it's true that much of our law is based on basic, recognizable, biblical, Judeo-Christian law principles. Things like, you shall not steal, or murder, or lie. But in practice, human concepts and interpretations of applications of law often fall quite short of God's perfect righteousness and justice. And I say that because, in my opinion and experience, there are really an awful lot of gray areas in dispensing justice in a society's justice and legal system. But when we study God's word, we realize that God's view of justice is quite different from our views here on earth. And one of the very biggest differences is found in a foundational principle of our justice system. Namely, that a person is considered innocent before being proven to be guilty. But in God's view, and standing in his perfect righteousness and holiness, all people are inherently guilty. We're not innocent. We're guilty. Because our first parents fall into sin has corrupted all of us. Romans 3 verse 23 declares this quite bluntly in declaring that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people. No exceptions. Not even little babies. Jesus, echoing Psalm 14, says in Mark 10.18 that no one is good except God alone. There are many in our society who like to stand on the principle that, well, people are good at heart. We're inherently good. 
But God's Word says we are inherently wicked. We could see the problem starting to develop. In Romans 5.18, God's Word tells us that one trespass, just one, meaning, meaning one sin, one act of disobedience, one act of rebellion against God, one violation of God's will that was perpetrated by our first parents has resulted in condemnation for all people. That means we are all so guilty we cannot even be proven to be innocent, not by the best lawyers in the world. And we, well, we only have to examine ourselves honestly, measuring ourselves up against God's law that he has given to us to know that that is true. And in God's, God's righteous kingdom, there is only one possible outcome in dispensing justice for our sin. A ruling that is declared in Genesis 2, verse 17, which informs us that even before our first parents disobeyed God and sin, God said that the penalty was going to be death. Romans 6.28 reiterates that quite plainly as it says, the wages of sin is death. Now that truth that we are guilty is completely the opposite of our society's concept of innocence before guilt. And when we think about it, it it kind of leaves us in a pretty hopeless state. Because in our guilt, we deserve the just sentence the judge renders. Any honest, perfect concept of justice demands it. However, alongside of telling us that unpleasant and uncomfortable truth, because we need to know it, God's word tells us that God, in his perfect dispensation of perfect justice, which is demanded in his perfect righteousness, which is itself rooted in his perfect holiness, does so out of a righteousness that is greater and more wonderful and more magnificent than anything we can replicate in a fallen and sin world that's governed by sinners. You see, and here... Here is another major difference between the world's view of righteousness and its role in God's kingdom. The world, you see, asserts that righteousness is an ideal. It's an ideal that society ought to be striving for. And the righteousness of our society is established in developing and codifying law as determined by people. In particular, our politicians and experts in the law. And then that law then governs society. So we kind of got it backwards. We, we develop law and we codify the law, and that law then informs what our righteousness in society looks like. There couldn't be possibly any problems with that, could there? Especially recognizing that the people who develop this law system we have are also people who are fallen in sin. Yeah, maybe there are some areas that we can learn from God. But the Bible... See, the Bible teaches that God's righteousness is part and parcel of who God is. It's what we call an attribute of God. And that means it is an inherent part of God's perfect composition and character. Therefore, it characterizes and informs and motivates everything God does in governing His kingdom. Righteousness comes first, not the law. Righteousness does. Now, it's precisely because God is holy that he cannot tolerate or abide by sin. And because God is righteous, sin must be punished. Justice must be dispensed in accord with the judge's ruling. 
So, so think of that courtroom picture again. If you are a defendant accused of crimes and the judge asks how you plead, like most defendants, you'll probably say, probably prompted by your lawyer, not guilty, Your Honor. And then all of the evidence is presented with nothing favorable to your case. And of course, then the judge issues a ruling, guilty as charged. And since a sentence has already been codified as right and just for such crimes, you can expect to receive the punishment that the judge will impose, whatever it may be. But then as you're being taken out of the courtroom, the judge's son, whom you don't even know, steps into the courtroom and says to the judge, Father, I'll take the punishment. Please, Father, declare that prisoner to be forgiven and set him or her free. Well, of course, God's Word teaches and Christians know it well. That, that's exactly what Jesus did. Knowing the punishment for our sin is eternal death. Now, can you imagine anyone in this world doing that? Stepping in to die in place of someone? Perhaps, depending on circumstances and situations, we might for a beloved spouse, or for a child, or for a grandchild, or maybe for a very good friend, but for a convicted felon? Would a judge even allow that to happen? It's pretty doubtful. And I think that our justice system does not even allow for it. And that's because our justice system stands on the principle that a person found guilty must serve his or her own sentence, whatever it is. Because justice requires the sentence to be carried out by the perpetrator of a crime. So what kind of a judge does that? Punishes an innocent person in place of a guilty one. Well, our scriptures teach us that that's only a judge whose righteousness stands apart from and above the law. A righteousness that provides an alternative to the expected administration of the sentence that justice demands. Romans 3 verse 21 affirms that in telling us, Now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Do you get that? It separates righteousness from the law. Apart from law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This judge has righteousness inherent to his character and being. This judge, therefore, has a greater kind of righteousness and justice upholding his judge's bench, which for this judge is the exact same thing as his royal throne. And therefore, he found and he created a way for people to be saved from the death that we deserve. Psalm 89 describes this judge as being full of great love and a faithfulness that fills the heavens. Faithfulness that is praised for its wonderfulness. Faithfulness that will not abandon the people he created to belong to him forever. Faithfulness that would see his heavenly righteousness and justice revealed in his son Jesus. And his power and his majesty is more awesome than all who surround him. No one, no one at all can compare with him. And because he has created everything that exists, well, he owns it all. And therefore, he has the right to establish his kingdom and his rule on what I like to call glory-proclaiming principles of perfect righteousness and justice. In knowing that, and to understand how and why God would punish the guilty through having Jesus take our death sentence upon himself... 
we have to look to God's goals, which is all about restoring a fallen and sin creation and establishing a perfect kingdom in a glory-declaring creation where everything is right and good and it is populated by people God loves, people who fell into sin. And it kind of amazes me in a way that God didn't say, I'm just going to get rid of all of those people and create a new bunch to start over with. No, He takes the people that fell into sin, calls some of them to be His own, and then He saves us. And He restores us from that curse of sin. And we love Him in return. But these people who are fallen in sin needed to be set free from that curse of sin and death that we impose upon ourselves. We're responsible for it. And in administering justice, which is informed by perfect righteousness, God decided, we could even say He enacted by royal decree in tune with His perfect holiness and righteousness, a ruling that declares that the death of a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous person would suffice and satisfy what perfect justice requires. And we call that, perhaps in some cases, substitutionary atonement. Someone stepped in for us and became our substitute in taking the penalty that God had decreed we are owed. And so, we got Jesus. We got the judge's son who stepped into our cursed world and died for us so that our guilt would be completely wiped away and we would be cleansed to become just who God wants us to be. Men and women and boys and girls who are described by the Apostle Peter as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, people who are saved in the blood of Jesus so that we may declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. And that, people loved by God, reveals why God saves people for populating His eternal kingdom. That in knowing the glorious way by which we have been saved, we live to declare His praise. We live to proclaim His glory. And we, having received holiness and righteousness in Jesus in being saved, we go on to live as Micah the prophet informs us is required as people who are blessed by God's perfect righteousness and justice. It's said in Micah 6, verse 8. In our living, we strive to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, all the while rejoicing in the blessings that are granted by our faithful God, to whom be all praise and glory forever. Let us pray. Father, it's truly amazing to consider who you are. Your love, your faithfulness, your mercy, your grace, your righteousness. The means of our salvation which flows out of that. And we thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself as one whose righteousness surpasses law. It makes it possible that we could receive Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we are called to then live in ways that exemplify what your justice means to us. And we ask that you help us to do that as we go about our daily lives and the things that we do all the time. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.